Amen. Well, as we survey the cross today, uh, I hope that's the response of our hearts as we come away and behold our Savior on the cross. And we'd sing with the hymn we just sang together. We see that love and say, oh, I will give him this one, my life, my soul, my all. We've gathered to indeed behold the glory of the Son of Man on the cross. And that's the theme of our text today, beholding the glory of Christ, the Son of Man, on the cross. His glory uh, on the cross radiates through His torn flesh and bleeding wounds as He shows the world what God is like, what God does for sinners. This, uh, this has been the focal point of the gospel. In fact, you may remember through the book of John, John and Jesus both have been looking forward to the coming hour, the hour when the Son of Man would be glorified and the Father would be glorified in Him. Here we are. Here's the hour, the moment when Christ is there up on the cross, dying in place of sinners. In last week's passage, we, of course, had the trial before Pilate, which sort of became this coronation scene as Jesus, the true king, was crowned in this mocking fashion, and we watched as he took our place on the way to the cross. Now, as Jesus is there on the cross in today's passage, John highlights four scenes And we're going to spend a little time focusing on each scene. Just notice them with me briefly. The first scene opens in verse 17. Jesus bearing his cross. And this scene will focus on the location of Jesus' crucifixion. The next scene happens in verse 19. There we focus in on Pilate and this title that he gives to Jesus. The third scene arrives in verse 23 when John turns our attention to the soldiers who crucified Jesus. And we focus in on what they're doing there down in front of the cross. And the final scene comes in verse 25 when we focus in not on the four soldiers, but now on the four women who stand near the cross and watch their crucified Lord. These are our scenes, and each one of them helps us to see exactly what God is communicating through the cross, why Jesus died, and what He's accomplishing as He hangs there on the cross in our place. And so we want together to behold the glory of the Son of Man on the cross. Now back to our first scene, and I'll try to mark these out on the stage. One, two, three, four scenes as we work through our sermon. So Let's see, is it right to left? Yeah, we'll start over here. That way you know, I'm just trying to throw off the camera guy. This is, uh, this is fun for him. So, first scene, this scene has to do with the location, the location. And so if you notice in verses 17 and 18, the location is highlighted in a few different ways. We read this, He, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. John gives us the title of this location, the location of the scene, the place of the skull, and he even gives us the Hebrew name, Golgotha. There may be a number of reasons that John does this. It may have been a well-known place in the early church, and so they could kind of recollect where this took place. 
it's likely that the name of the place had something to do with the location. Some surmise there was maybe a, a skull shape in a rock formation near where these crosses were stationed. And this was a, a well-used location for Roman crucifixions, not just for Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, the word skull is a word that you'll be familiar with. In fact, the Greek word sounds like our word cranium, right? So we know that word it has to do with our skulls. Of course, the Hebrew word Golgotha, we're not as familiar with that. You're familiar with the Latin form of this word, Calvaria, or where we get our term, Calvary. So this place, this location has become known worldwide in history as the location of death the place of the skull. Skulls were associated with death. And I think that's the real reason this place is called that is because this is a place where the Romans had been crucifying over and over and over again. And so metaphorically speaking, the skulls of death had been piling up here at the place of the skull. As Jesus enters this location, this location known for death. But that's not the only location that John points out. It's not just Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. In verse 18, he highlights specifically where Jesus is. Notice this. Where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now, if there are three criminals being crucified and there's one on each side, We could safely assume that Jesus is located in the center, but John goes to the effort to say it openly. And so verse 17 opens and verse 18 closes with our focus on Jesus. We're following Jesus. Where is he? First, he's bearing his cross. Now he's up on the cross. Jesus in the center. He's in the place of death. But here, too, he's also surrounded by death. Well, death, what do you mean? It's two criminals. Yes, two criminals. He's he's hung with the transgressors, as Isaiah 53 says, that he would be associated with criminals. And so there's a fulfillment of prophecy. John doesn't point that out specifically. But these are not any criminals. These two are criminals who are also condemned to death. They're dead men walking. And so there's Jesus in the center Surrounded by two dying men on his right and his left, in the place of death, the place of the skull. What's John focusing in on as we consider the scene? Well, remember who Jesus is. This is the Gospel of John, and we've uh, together studied the context all the way since last Christmas when we began in John chapter 1. And there in John chapter 1, John introduces the Lord Jesus to us as the Word who was there at creation. And he reminds us there in the early verses, in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. And through the Gospel of John, John has affirmed to us that Jesus is indeed the living one. In fact, in John chapter 11, there we're reminded that He's the resurrection and the life. And so here in John chapter 19, life enters the place of death. Life hangs on a cross between two dead men. Life faces death for us. So this is how John opens the crucifixion scene. And this is what we learn together as we behold the glory of the Son of Man on the cross. As the life, Jesus, is surrounded by death, 
He becomes the focal point. As John says at the end of verse 18, Jesus in the center. Our eyes turn to Him. What's going to happen as life hangs in the midst of death? What is God doing as the living one dies for our sins? And so it all opens with the focus on Jesus, first carrying His cross and then on the cross in the center in this place of death. All eyes on Jesus. Maybe you can think back to a time when suddenly the focus all turned to a specific place. I was thinking about this back to a time when in our house uh, we lost power. And uh, we had a few flashlights, but of course the flashlights were tucked away in places that were in the dark. And so you're kind of stumbling around trying to find where they're at. Uh, And in this occasion, uh, the batteries were dead in the flashlights. So that's of no help either, right? You can't really, uh, it's hard to remember to keep changing the batteries of the flashlights out just in case the power goes out. So we had to depend in this case on a candle. We had one candle in the house, right? And so we find the candle and we light the candle. And uh, before long, everyone in the house had sort of flocked to the light. Because <laughs> everywhere else in their house was dark. What else were we going to do? And so all of us suddenly were gathering around the light. And we even tried playing a board game around the candlelight, you know, and trying to see what the cards said as we were playing with one another there in the dark, all leaning in as close as possible to the candle. And that's sort of what's happening here in these opening two verses as Jesus enters the place of the skull surrounded by two men condemned to death in this place of death. All eyes turn to Jesus as the light of the world. The life himself hangs on the cross in our place. This is where our eyes turn as we seek to understand what God is doing through the cross. Jesus in the center. Is this not a great summary of the Christian life? Jesus as the focal point. Is this not what Jesus predicted when he talked with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and began to explain to Nicodemus that even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that when in Israel the the people were being bitten by those poisonous snakes, they were surrounded by death on every side as their brothers, sisters, families, cousins were dying from the snake bites. And Moses set up that provision of salvation for the people that all who looked to that serpent up on the post would live. So to now the Son of Man is lifted up in the center of the camp surrounded by death, as all of us dying people look to the one who is life, and those who believe live. Jesus is the sinner. He's there on the cross calling to sinners, look to me, the one, the living one who died for you. He said this very clearly in John chapter 11. When he said, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asks. It's interesting because this crucifixion passage almost follows the outline that Jesus laid out in John chapter 12 when he predicted that his hour was coming. There in chapter 12, he says this, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. 
Here, life himself prepares to die in order to impart his life to others. This is the glory of the cross. Life faces death so that we might live. Friend, do you believe that Jesus carried your sins to the cross? Do you believe that he paid the full price of God's wrath for sins that you have committed against God? Do you believe that he rose again from the dead? Then trust him. Accept his offer of salvation by entrusting your eternal soul to him. Look to Jesus for salvation. And if you've trusted in Christ as Savior, then I encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus. He's at the center. Is there a better way to summarize the Christian life to keep Jesus at the center, the focal point of our lives? For example, maybe a young mom starts most of her days with the needy cries of her children. In those mundane acts of service to her little one, she tries to keep her eyes on the cross, on the Savior who served her, who died for her. She takes joy in the opportunity to show her children what Jesus' love looks like as she changes diapers, wipes away tears, and fills hungry tummies. Jesus is the center. He's the focal point. In the next scene of our text, we move from Jesus there on the center on the cross. And you notice in verse 19, our focus turns to Pilate and this title. It says, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. This was often the case. They would take the charge of the criminal and they would put it on a placard and hang it there on the cross so that all who passed by could read what it was that this criminal had done, identifying the criminal and usually their crime as well. Rupert, the money launderer, hangs here. And what it meant to do was to serve as a warning to all who passed by. Don't do what this guy did. It's how Rome used the cross as a point of shame and a point of warning to all who passed by. It was meant to be visible. But you'll notice in John, a different word is used for this placard. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's used in a couple different ways. We're told in those Gospels that this was a charge. I think it's in Mark that that one is mentioned. In Matthew and Luke, we're told that it is an inscription, a writing. Only in John is this placard called a title. And here the title reads as follows, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of of the Jews. So here Pilate, I think, is trying to sort of send a jab towards the chief priests. <laughs> they didn't want to miss their king. In fact, they would be embarrassed to have this hanging man on the cross called their king. And so I think that's probably Pilate's intent. <laughs> I'll call him the king of the Jews. They'll love that. We don't know whether he thought that or not, but that's the likely, the likely reason. But the irony is, Pilate has just given Jesus the accurate title. He is indeed the king 
And I think John uses the word title here to clue us into the fact that something else is going on, that this inscription there above Jesus on the cross is actually his real title, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. John also points out that it's written in three languages. Again, this was common practice, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. These are the three main languages spoken in that region, Hebrew and Aramaic being very similar. And so it's written in these three languages so that everyone around could read the inscription on this cross. They could read of Jesus the King. It's not a charge. It's not a crime. It's nothing that he had done wrong. It's actually his title. And I think in many ways this fulfills Jesus' own prediction in John chapter 12 when he said that as the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all peoples to himself. Here the King is exalted on high and his title can be read in every language of the region so that all people who read it know, ah, here's the King. But his exaltation is different than we would expect. He's lifted up to die. He's lifted up on a cross. He's lifted up with the criminals. He's lifted up to die in our place. Of course, the chief priests don't really like this. And so they come to Pilate and they ask him to change. Well, ask is a generous word. They demand that he change the writing on the inscription. Not that he is the king of the Jews, but that he said he's the king of the Jews. He claimed he's the king of the Jews. But that's actually not true. As far as we know, in the record of the Gospel of John, Jesus did not claim to be the king of the Jews. He was, but he never said that. Pilate accused him of that. Are you a king? And Jesus confirmed, but even there he said, I am a king of a kingdom not of this world. So the chief priests, again, are going back to this accusation, and what they want Pilate to write even there is a lie. It's not the truth. Pilate, in a rare glimpse of bravery and stubbornness here, actually says back to the chief priest, no, what I've written, I have written. And some even think that the way he says that is sort of another jab at their own commitment to the written word. Often the Pharisees and chief priests would say, well, it is written in the scrolls. It is written in the word, this and this and this. And Pharisee may be kind of throwing it back at them. (laughs) What I've written, I've written. The title is staying. (laughs) And so in an ironic turn of events, the written title of Jesus, King of the Jews, hangs there above the cross as the true king is revealed to the world in every language of the reason region, and as Jesus is up on the cross, he draws all people to himself. So here in this second scene, this is what we learn of the glory of our king. As the true king is lifted up, he draws all people to himself. Those in every language in the region see what is written there on the cross. Here hangs the true king. We see God's plan unfolding here and the fulfillment of John 12, 32, when Jesus says, If I indeed am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Carrie and I were on a trip recently, and we were out on a walk uh, in the evening. And uh, as we were walking, we noticed a large crowd of people. We were kind of curious 
what was going on. They had gathered in sort of a circle. Something in the center was going on. And so we're kind of, you know, trying to look over the people and see what it was that was happening. And our walking path sort of shifted to drift over towards the crowd and what might be happening there. And pretty soon we saw some guy pop up on an extended unicycle seat, right? So the little wheel was down near the ground and there was this long skinny pole and then the seat up here. And so he's kind of holding on to somebody's shoulder and trying to balance himself up on the unicycle seat. You know, and before we knew it, we too were kind of like, oh, what is going on here? You know, just kind of wandering toward the crowd, watching what's happening here. And uh, Carrie kind of nudged me, it's just a street performer. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. I've seen those before. All right, let's keep walking, right? But, you know, he's up on this unicycle and he's, you know, pretending he doesn't have his balance and so forth. And so it kind of gripped our attention for a second as we sort of drifted into the crowd as well to watch what was happening. The crowds flocked to see the entertainer. But in a far more serious and real way, as Jesus is lifted up on the cross, what God the Father is doing is He's putting on display His very love for the world, the King crucified for His enemies. And as He puts this on display, God the Father, through Jesus, draws all people to this Savior King. He calls to the world, come and trust in the one who died for your sins. Jesus, lifted up, calls to you today. Why would God be on a cross? Why would the innocent be condemned to death? Why would the strongest one become weak? Why would the living one die? Why would the king willingly face this kind of shame? Indeed, the cross is a curious thing. Yet, all of these answers lead to one important truth. Jesus died for you. He died to show God's love for you. His being lifted up is a reminder that God the Father wants the cross to be seen. Not just by the Jews in AD 30, but by everyone. In fact, I think God brought you here today to see in the words of Scripture, Jesus lifted up on the cross. Is the Father drawing you to the cross today to trust in the one who died for your sins? Will you believe? If you've trusted in Christ as Savior, then the question for us is, will we worship This is the exaltation of the king on a cross. Will we worship the one who died for us? As Jesus explained to the woman at the well, this is what the Father is doing. He's gathering worshipers, the ones who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who will then worship him in spirit and in truth. This is why Jesus was lifted up, that those who trust in him would become his worshipers. Will you live for him? In fact, back in 1225, right after Jesus explains that the seed must fall to the ground and die in order to bear much fruit, he says that his disciples will even be called to do the same thing, that those who serve him must follow him, live for him, follow his example. And so, like the Father, lifting up the Son on the cross, we too can proclaim the cross with our lives. As the Apostle Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So, for example, Brent 
works hard to provide for his family. After wondering how to make the most of his time at the office, he begins focusing intentionally on the cross. Each morning as a part of his time with the Lord, he turns his attention to the cross, meditating briefly on the sacrifice of Jesus in his place. And it helps him to regain his focus for the day. He has a job, a family, even life itself, primarily so he can proclaim the cross. He begins his workday grateful for salvation, praying for opportunities to show Jesus' love to co-workers, and then again to his family when he arrives home. As the true king is lifted up, he draws all people to himself. The third scene arrives there in verse 23. And our attention here is turned to the soldiers who likely are gathered there down near the base of the cross, the foot of the cross. And we read that after they've crucified him, so they've put him up, now the cross beam is in place, and there hangs the Savior, Jesus. They did something. They took his garments and made four parts because there were four of them. Well, that seemed logical. In fact, this was common practice with crucifixions. They would take the, the, the possessions of the one who was crucified, and it was the privilege of the soldiers who oversaw the crucifixion to be able to divide those things up and take home anything of value. This word garments probably would have included his sandals, his belt, uh, maybe some kind of sash, a head covering. We don't know all, um, but there was, it was somehow divisible between four of them. And so they divide these things up. But then comes the tunic. And it's just interesting to me that John spends so much time on the tunic. Just notice what he says about the tunic at the second half of verse 23. To each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam woven from the top in one piece. How did John know this about the tunic? The tunic was usually worn as a base layer, and so it would have been a long robe, usually down to the ankles, and often it was just made of two pieces, the front and the back stitched together down the sides, and that was your simple tunic made of of linen or, or leather even sometimes as just a base layer to wear around. So people were familiar with tunics, but John is very familiar with this tunic. One piece, he says, woven from top to bottom. What is John highlighting with this? Well, it's hard to say exactly. There's a few possibilities. The historian Josephus, who wrote shortly after this time, talks about the tunic of the high priest as being woven from the top to the bottom in one piece, a unique kind of tunic, a special kind of tunic. Now, again, we're completely doing guesswork here, But you may remember that John, the author of our gospel, was connected to the high priest. He was known by the high priest. In fact, he was given entrance to the temple area where the other disciples were not because he was considered a relative. And so some even surmise that maybe a relative of John had helped with the production of this special tunic for Jesus, for him to wear during his life and ministry. And that's why John knew so much about the weaving of this tunic. 
Now, some try to highlight that the tunic of the high priest is of significance and that this is Jesus in his role as high priest going to the cross. And that's possible, but here the garment is laid aside. It's not on Jesus. He's given up his garment. And I think that's where we find the significance. Where was the last time that Jesus' garments were laid aside? Just hours earlier in John chapter 13, when Jesus himself laid aside his garments and knelt down to wash the feet of his followers as he served them. It's interesting if you just flip over a few pages to John chapter 13. When Jesus does this, you'll notice beginning in verse 3, he does it with great intention. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments. There's that phrase. Took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel which he was girded. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And here's the key. Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Something is coming when Jesus will again lay aside his garments and serve his disciples. And I think it's the cross. Here, Jesus' tunic is laid aside as the soldiers gamble over it, and Jesus serves his followers. Just in the following discourse, Jesus would explain to them that they are to love one another as he loved them. And he would even say to them, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Here Jesus lays aside his garment and lays down his life for his followers. But that's not all John points out. We learn that the soldiers have to kind of... uh, roll the dice, so to speak, in present-day terms. They cast lots over this valuable tunic to see who can keep it. And so we even get to like listen in to this conversation of the soldiers in verse 24. Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be? And as a reader, you sort of get the sense that these soldiers are just kind of doing what's logical, right? This is probably how they solved uh, problems all the time. It's like our little rock, paper, scissors games, you know, when we have disagreements and arguments and so forth. Rock, paper, scissors, and we'll see who takes it, right? So here they cast lots to decide, oh, let's not argue about it. Who's going to take the tunic? Let's roll the dice. Let's cast lots and see to whom it will fall. But John points out that there's more going on at the end of verse 24. He says, this happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And John says significantly at the end of verse 24, therefore, The soldiers did these things. (laughs) It wasn't just some random act. This wasn't just some uh, spur-of-the-moment solution. This is the sovereign God sitting on the throne in control, even of this dark hour as Christ goes to the cross, serving his disciples by laying down his life. Even then, God is in control, fulfilling the very prophecy of Psalm 22, 18, that lots would be cast for the garments of the Savior. What we see as we consider this scene at the cross is that as the Savior lays down His life, He fulfills the Father's plan to the very detail. It's interesting that in Psalm 22, 18, there are two solutions. Some of the garments would be divided up. 
Some of the garments would, would be cast lots. And it's exactly how it unfolded. That indeed both things happened. That God's word is fulfilled perfectly even as Jesus goes to the cross. As he lays down his life and loves his own, he's doing so to fulfill the Father's plan for salvation. God is at work here, accomplishing what the Savior must do to save sinners. What we learn from this, friends, is that God loves you and you can trust God's plan. You can trust God's plan. The the cross proves God's love. Romans 8.32 reminds us of this. No matter what you face, you can look back to the cross and remember that God loves you. There's a Savior who laid down His life in this greatest act of love, and He did it for you. He laid aside His garments so He could serve you. But even in that moment, God is in complete control Here in the darkest moment of history, as the Son of God dies on the cross, God is still in complete control. Even the roll of the dice is in God's hands. No matter what chaos you feel like you face in your life, remember that you are not out of control. God is still sovereign and on the throne of the universe. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. As Pilate prioritizes his political advantage over justice and crucifies an innocent man, God means to provide a savior for the world. As the chief priests fight to keep their derived authority over the Jews and murder the Son of God, God means it to pay for their sins. As Satan seeks to kill God, God means it to conquer sin and death and crush the skull of the serpent at the place of the skull. No evil can overpower God. No plot can thwart his plan. Friend, keep trusting God who laid down his life for you and always fulfills his plan. He keeps his word every time. For example, Carol was recently diagnosed with cancer. She knew that she was, uh, at this age in her life, she would face some health challenges, but she never expected cancer to be one of them. She was ready for heaven if God chose to take her home, but she was pretty sure she wasn't ready for chemotherapy. Somehow that seemed worse. And she remembered the cross where Jesus laid down his life for her. She remembered that God loved her and had never stopped loving her. Even this cancer diagnosis is part of his loving plan for her. She remembered that even through the cross, God fulfilled his plan of salvation. And she knew that even through chemotherapy, God would keep her, help her, and use her to bring glory to his name. And so she began praying that God would be glorified through her struggle. As we come to the final scene, our attention turns to the four women near the cross. From the four soldiers gambling over his garments to the four women, and as we'll see, maybe even one of them that might have sewn this very garment the soldiers are gambling over. Complete speculation, but interesting to think about. So here they are. John lists them. And as we read in verse 25, two of them are nameless and two of them are named. There stood by the cross 
of Jesus, his mother. Now we know his mother's name, it's Mary, but John leaves it out. Then we move to the next woman and his mother's sister. Well, this is Jesus' aunt, but again, her name is left out, just his mother's sister. We come to the third woman, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So in this small gathering, there are actually three Marys gathered here and one who is left unnamed. The question is, why are they left unnamed? Well, if we compare with the Synoptic Gospels, we learn that there were some other women who were gathered there. We learn that there was Mary's sister, and she's given a name in the other Gospels. Her name is Salome. And she's also called in one of the other Gospels the uh, wife of Zebedee, or the the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, if we think back, who were the sons of Zebedee? Well, there's James. Who was that other guy? Yeah, John. (laughs) Well, now we begin to understand why the disciple who is not named, the disciple whom Jesus loved, might not have named his mother and his aunt. He had a thing for not calling out people in his family, apparently. And so here is John's aunt, Jesus' mother, Mary, And John's mother, Salome, the sister of Mary, there around the cross. Mary of Clopas, the best that we can tell, might have been a sister to Joseph. So this is possibly Jesus' aunt on his father's side, and Mary Magdalene, one of his close followers. So this group of four women, people who all cared for Jesus and for whom he cared as well, are standing there near the cross. Verse 26, Jesus looks down from the cross, sees his mother and the nameless disciple, the disciple whom he loved, standing by. And he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus looks at Mary. This is John's aunt. And he then looks at John, and first he says to Mary, Woman, behold your son. Now, the the word woman, I think, should catch us off guard. It's not a typical way you refer to your mother. But this isn't the first time we've heard Jesus talk to his mother this way. Back in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana, when Mary tried to get Jesus to do what she wanted, Jesus sort of put up a respectful hand of caution and said, woman, what does your request have to do with me? Now, now understand in English, that sounds very rude, but this term used to refer to people was very respectful. It's like saying ma'am or dear woman. So it's not a harsh thing, but it is a step away from mother. And there in John 2, what Jesus was doing was reminding his mother that here, now he was about his father's business. So even though she asked for this request, he wasn't going to do it unless it was part of the Father's plan. He's hinting at his sonship with the Father, that he's about the Father's business. And I think the same thing is sort of going on here. Jesus is about the Father's business. Believe me, Mary didn't want him on the cross. So he says, woman, Behold your son. Now, the word behold in John is used as kind of this reminder to see something interesting. Like at the beginning of John, when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. Not something visible on the outward, but a truth that that John wants the reader to understand. 
So here too, Jesus points out something significant. Behold your son. Mary is now to see John as her son. Now, this could simply be Jesus caring for his mother, and I think that certainly is happening here. As Jesus prepares to depart to the Father, he's caring for his mother. But it is interesting that he starts, Mother, here's your son. And not the other way around. John, care for her. But instead, Mary, see John as your son. He's hinting at family relationship here. Jesus had brothers. And as we know, Mary spent time with those brothers. So they very well could have cared for her. So it's not just about care. John didn't need a mother. In fact, his mother was right there, standing next to Mary, Salome, hearing Jesus say, Behold your son. I think Jesus is actually beginning to hint at the family that he came to create. John, of course, told us about this at the beginning of the gospel. As many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. I think Jesus began to help them understand the family of God, that as he departs to the Father, it inaugurates the family of God on earth, that now Mary and John are now mother and son because they both believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is sort of unfolding to them his role as the son of the Father and their Love for one another in the family of God. As the Son of God prepares to depart, we see He loves His own to the end. Even there on the cross, He's looking down at them and caring for them, not just making sure that John's cared for and Mary's cared for, but actually helping them understand that within the family of God, there's mutual care back and forth across the board. As the Apostle Paul will later write to Timothy that we see older men as fathers and older women as mothers and younger women as sisters and younger men as brothers because we see each other as the family of God. And as the Son of God departs to the Father, he's reminding them you still have family. You have the family of God. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And so he loves them to the very end. Here, the Son of God invites them into the family of God because He departs to the Father. Even His departure is an act of love as He cares for them to the end. His love never fails. Even as He dies, He looks upon those He cares for and thinks of their needs from the cross as He prepares to go to the Father. And so He says, To his disciples, as I depart and go to the Father, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And this is sort of the handing off of the baton of the family of God, that we then would love one another as he has loved us. This was the message, and this is what he's encouraging them to do, to love one another. So friends, this becomes the rhythm of our lives As we look to the cross and see the love of the Son of God who cares for His own, even to the end, we too can care for the family of God the way He has cared for us. Because Jesus has sacrificed for me, I can sacrifice for my spouse. Because Jesus has listened patiently to me, I can listen patiently 
to my neighbor. Because Jesus has loved me carefully, I can discipline my child in love and not in anger again. Because Jesus has sacrificed for me, I can get up a little earlier and spend time with Him in the morning. We can cut back on our busy schedules. We have time for the things we know God wants us to do. We confess our sin to God and others and ask for forgiveness with humility because of the way He's forgiven us. We find joy over and over in setting aside our own desires for God and others because that's the way He served us. He loved His own and He loved them to the end. Even His departure on the cross was an act of love. And as He hung there in pain, He thought of His loved ones. The cross displays the incredible glory of our God. The one who died in our place. Life surrounded by death becomes the focal point of our very lives. The true king lifted up draws all nations to himself to become his worshipers, to those who would trust in him as savior. The savior who lays down his life and puts on display the loving plan of God which can be thwarted by nothing and is still unfolding in your life. The one who loves you and the son of God who departed so that you could become a child of God and know His love and show His love to those around you. This is the glory of the cross, the Savior who died in your place and mine. And friend, as we look to Jesus on the cross, He calls sinners to come to Him and to believe. And He says, if you come, I'll never cast you out. That's our Savior. Friend, would you come to him today and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died in your place? And if you have trusted in Christ as Savior, then keep looking to the cross where this Jesus displayed for you the very glory of God through his wounds and through his broken flesh. He showed you exactly what God's love looked like when he hung there in your place, laying down his life for you so that you can proclaim the cross with your life. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. We praise you for the glory of our Savior Jesus on the cross. Thank you for what you accomplished through him and that from his very words and actions on the cross, we see the glory of what you have done. Your mercy is on display. Your faithfulness is on display. Your sovereignty is on display. Your kindness and your patience and your love to the end, the fulfillment of your word. So much we see as we look to Jesus lifted up. And so as we close today, Father, I ask again that any here today that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior might look to the cross and see your glory, that you would awaken their heart's understanding of their need for a Savior that they trust in Christ today, and that we who have trusted in Christ would live for the glory of the cross, that our lives too would display what you have done for us in Jesus, that your name might be magnified. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.